Well, if you brought your Bibles this morning, please open them to Ephesians chapter 4. Amen. Really glad to have David and B. Mulligan here. Good old friends. They're, they're moving into the valley from Dillingham. And if you would, you know that really beautiful ceiling in the apartment? Yeah. He's the guy that built it. Yeah, him. So there you go. All right. Ephesians. Yeah, I'm serious. Yes. You think I did that? No. Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we've been looking at this letter for several weeks now. Um, we've been looking at first our status in Christ, um, the place we have been given as adopted children, we're the children of God by adoption, as citizens in his kingdom, uh, members of his household. Our status is very privileged. We're called to an inheritance, and um, that status came at great cost, came at the shed blood of his son. The life, the death, the resurrection of our Lord. And, and that status brings into our lives the presence of the Holy Spirit, both individually and collectively. Individually, we are his saints, his holy ones. That's who we are. Collectively, we are his church, the body of Christ. And, and we have a confidence that we have a physical representation or a literal representation in the heavenlies, in our Savior. So a lot comes to us in terms of benefit due to this status we have. We've been looking at that in the first three chapters. And then over the last couple of weeks, we were looking at our response to that. What's our part to that equation? Being called into relationship with our Father. And uh, we started looking at that word walk the last couple of weeks where Paul writes in the, in the first verse of the fourth chapter, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. So we talked about that. What does it mean to walk in that manner? It means uh, to live the whole of our lives uh, in a way that expresses who he is. Our lives, every bit of it, uh, should reflect um, who God is and who we are. We are filled with his spirit, incorporated into his family, his community, his household. Walk in a manner worthy. And, you know, that's a, a really sharp contrast we discovered to the Old Testament, you know, where... We're told to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. In the Old Testament, they got 613 rules. We have one. Walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Now, that doesn't mean it's easier. In fact, if anything, it may be more challenging. But the difference is those 613 commandments were given to, to the people of Israel to show them what a godly person, how a godly person lived. And, of course, they couldn't do it because none of us can those 613 commandments pointed to Jesus, right? So they had to do that to try to measure up. And of course, they, as we all would, failed. But we have a leg up, if you will. We have the presence of the Spirit in our lives. And we have the blood of our Savior on our account. So we got, we, we've got a better chance, if I, can, if I can use that kind of terminology, in living up to what Paul says it's our obligation to do. Walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Walk as people who are saved, redeemed, sanctified, filled with his spirit, right? And it's a challenge because, you know, a lot of the world still lives in us, right? I think, I think we're probably aware of that experientially, if not from the text, that so much of the world is still alive in us. And because of that, in addition to the positive side of the equation, you know, how we're supposed to walk, of course, there's also the negative side how we're not supposed to walk. And that's where we pick it up uh, this morning in, in Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to start with just one verse. So Paul writes in the 17th verse, Ephesians chapter 4, This I say therefore, 
and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord, because we know in it, Father, we have not only instruction as to how to live, Father, but we have nourishment for our souls, Father. Food for our mind, Father, to meditate upon, feast on, if, if, if we will, Lord. The strength we need to serve you, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I read this, uh, no longer walk as the Gentiles also walk. And, and, I, and I should note that at this point, Paul's using that word Gentile, not so much in contrast to Jew, but Gentile in terms of, of those outside. The word is, is ethnos, the nations, out, the pagans, is what he literally means. Um, when Paul says, walk no longer, just as the pagans, if you will, also walk, what do you expect to come next? If you haven't read the text recently, um, which I encourage you to do, very helpful, but this morning may be a case where it might have worked out better if you didn't. Right? If you haven't read the text recently, when Paul says, now this I urge you, don't walk like those pagans walk, what do you expect next? 600 and some odd rules, right? Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. We're conditioned to expect that from God. When God's word says, don't do, you know, you don't want to walk that way. We expect this whole list of rules. But that is not what he gives. That's not what Paul says. Paul goes another direction completely. Now, don't get me wrong. There is absolutely nothing wrong. And I don't want anything I say this morning to be taken as minimizing the recognition that there are some things as Christians we shouldn't do. There are things as Christians we should not do, right? We shouldn't be stealing from people. We shouldn't be sleeping around. We shouldn't be using foul language, drunkenness. I mean, you know the list, right? I think we all know the list. We should know the list because we're conditioned to know the list. But Paul goes another direction completely because as important as it is to know what as Christians we shouldn't be doing, that isn't the essence of being his child. And Paul will talk about specific things we should and shouldn't do, but he starts by talking about the essence of what it is to be his child, to be a member of his community, a part of his household, right? Just as the walk that Paul directs the Ephesians to is a matter of living in faithful, loving, growing, devoted community, so he also tells them to avoid something. He says, don't walk like the Gentiles, the pagans walk. And then he starts a list, but it's not the kind of list we might expect. The first thing he says is, do not walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Some of your translations will say vanity, the vanity of your mind. Um, the word is mateos, mateos. And that's one of those words, I'm sure there's a specific term for words like this, that when you say it, your face does it. Because you can't say Mateos and smile, right? When, when you get done saying it, you're scowling, and you should be, because it's that kind of word. It's a word that means empty or vain, but it actually carries meaning even beyond simply the idea of emptiness, because there are, are, are other words that he could have used, and he uses in different places uh, to mean empty, uh, like kinos. Kinos means empty. And empty isn't always a bad word, right? And if you go in the store, and you buy a pitcher, 
and you pull the pitcher off the shelf, you expect it to be empty, right? If it's full of water, that probably wouldn't be a good thing, right? Because you'd be everywhere, right? So it's not, empty's not always a bad thing. Sometimes empty should be empty. Now, kinos can go either way. Mateos never goes both ways. Mateos only knows bad. Because Mateos adds to the concept of emptiness the idea of deceit or delusion. I often talk about how when the, when the Hebrew scholars translated the Old Testament into the New and the Septuagint, they, they helped us understand how words were thought of in that time bracket right around the writing of the New Testament. And this is a really good example because when the Old Testament scholars translated the Hebrew of the Old Testament into Greek, they used matios when one of three conditions were being met. This word for empty or vanity is when one of three words are met. First of all, if they were talking about false prophets, those prophets and their words were matios. Not only were they devoid of meaning, they were fraudulent. Because the whole idea was the prophet was presenting himself as, as a prophet of God, speaking the words of God, speaking words of encouragement, words of strength, words of correction. But it was empty, it was vain, ultimately destructive, the false prophets. Or they would use this word to note false idols, idols of, of false gods. The idea being that the, the thought was if you needed something, you needed your crops to grow, you'd get the image of, a, of the God that was in charge of crops, and you'd bring that in your home, and you'd make offerings, and you'd pay to, pray to this idol, and your crops would grow. Well, that was a lie. It was false, vain, matios, empty. And then finally, it was used to describe human efforts at perfection. Solomon's famous use of vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Solomon's talking about trying to find a way in his own wisdom, in his own strength, to live a life that was satisfying, that brought him peace, that brought him the sense of meaning that we're all inclined to pursue, we're made that way, and it all failed. Every attempt of his own strength, his own mind failed. And so he said, it's all vanity, it's all matios, it's all empty, right? So in each case that the word is used, there's some measure of deception, delusion, if you will. Uh, not as advertised. That'd be a good way to put it, right? Is there a word that, is there a better word for describing our world? Is there a better word to describe the world in which we live in, where we are confronted with all kinds of things which are told are going to offer us so much, and yet time and time again we discovered they are not as advertised? Paul says the first thing he wants his, his, the, the people in Ephesus to know is not to walk in the way of the world's delusions, not to buy in to all the lies that the world offers it's emptiness, it's vanity, it's illusion. He says, secondly, a second characteristic of this, of this pagan worldview is to be darkened in the understanding. Darkened in the understanding. And he speaks specifically of that part of the mind where imagination functions, where creative thinking functions, right? A darkness that covers the eyes. And there's not much doubt that Paul's reacting back to his own experience of salvation on the Damascus Road in the book of Acts, where he was blinded by a brilliant light. And it wasn't until a man came and prayed for him that something like scales fell from his eyes. Now, whether those were physical scales or not, we have no way of knowing. But Paul definitely could understand that there had been something blocking his vision. As brilliant as he was, profound knowledge 
Well, the Old Testament scriptures wasn't enough. His own knowledge wasn't enough because his eyes were blinded. His mind was blinded. The world walks in blindness, darkness. When we speak of the lost, we're speaking of those who are blinded. In 2 Corinthians, Paul tells why. 4.4, he says, The God of this world has blinded them, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So the world not only walks in a delusion, the world walks in a mindless, and a blindness, which is to say there's no way out on their own. There's no way the lost can navigate their way out of their lostness because their eyes are blinded. Something has blinded them. And so the believer walks in futility and vanity of the mind, darkened in their understanding. Verse 18, excluded from the life of God. This puts the unbeliever in absolute opposition, contrast, if you will, to the believer. The believer has a place of the son or a daughter in adoption. Again, a citizen of a community, a member of a household. The unbeliever completely excluded from that. There is no way to be both. And there is no middle ground. Paul's absolutely clear in that. Excluded. It's like the first time you encounter somebody who doesn't speak a language you speak and you don't speak any language they speak. It's like, how do you communicate? You may have plenty you want to say. You can point at them and draw pictures, but that doesn't go very far. You're speaking to a foreigner, an alien. That's the kind of terminology Paul uses. And there's two reasons Paul gives for this because of ignorance that is in them. Paul acknowledges the, the unbeliever's ignorance not as a lack of knowledge. He said there's an, as an ignorance that dwells within them. They are not simply ignorant there is an ignorance that is in them. It indwells them like an illness or a disease, like an infection. And it's rooted, he goes on to say, in the hardness of the heart. The word describes a heart of stone. Like when Ezekiel talked about God taking out the heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. That heart, the seat of emotions and feelings and attachments. The heart where the truth of God can penetrate becomes utterly resistant. So notice what he has said. He has said the mind, or the capacity to process the truth of God at an intellectual level, is blinded. And the heart, the capacity to process the truth of God at an emotional level, is hardened. One is blinded, one is hardened. Rendering a human being completely impenetrable to the truth of God. And he concludes by saying they have become callous, coming to the place of total unfeeling, right? And then he goes on to say, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So the world is blinded intellectually, hardened emotionally. What is left? Sensuality. It should not surprise us that in the world, the only real way of community or connection is ultimately to sensuality because the other two capacities have been lost. It's as if Paul was looking not at Ephesian society, but our society. Every kind of sin imaginable. Not only done, but Paul says done with greediness and eagerness to excel in sin. It sounds to me like Paul's describing our world. I mean, I wasn't in Ephesus. I don't know what it looked like, but I know what our world looks like. And it sounds like he's describing our world. And then he adds these two observations. In verse 20, he says, but you did not learn Christ 
in this way. What he simply means is none of those things were to our profit. None of those things ultimately brought us satisfaction. And he adds a qualifier in verse 21. He says, if indeed you were born again, you know that you did not come to eternal life. You did not come to the knowledge of Christ through your own faculties, whether your own understanding or your own heart inclination. No, it was simply a manifestation of God and his mercy and grace. And this is what that does. It draws the essential line between the life of the, of the believer and the life of the unbeliever, divides humanity into two camps, and this is the critical part, at the same moment demonstrates, or if I can say insulates, the claim of the Christian from any challenge of bigotry. You know, we hear it all the time, right? You Christians think you're better, right? You Christians think we're bad. You know, there, there's, a, there's a tendency on the part of those outside the faith. Tendency is not an adequate word there. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a driven force to say to the believer, well, you think you're better. And the answer is, yes, I am. Now. Do we have the, the courage to say that in response? Yes, I am now, but only because I'm changed. See, it's a reminder that every one of us, anything we say of the unbeliever is also true of us, except we're changed. And the change is not to our personal credit. The change is a manifestation of the grace and mercy of God. Yes, I'm in a better place now. I'm in a better status now. I have a status now that is a 100% and more improvement of my old status. But I never forget where I was. I never forget what I'm drawn from because there is so much of it still left alive within me, right? We can all remember so clearly how we were on that side because we had a former manner of life. Verse 22, in reference to your former manner of life. While the memories of our former life are not pleasant, they are still important. The memories of our weakness, our failures, our inadequacies, our sin. It's important to remember because it's important to remember what we've been saved from and to remember that that's still so much of our nature. Ooh, I don't know about anybody else, but it's alive and well in me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Notice what he says in verse 22. This, this is a, an incredibly sobering verse. He says, in reference to your former manner of life, okay, I'm okay with that, you want to talk about my former life? I, we can talk about that. I'm, I'm comfortable. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. Okay, so far so good. I'm comfortable with that. I need to consciously and deliberately lay aside the old self. I'm, that old guy I used to be, the old man I was, the way I was when Jesus found me. I, I, I can go along with laying that aside. And then he says this, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. This is a case where, if you pay attention to the grammar, it really speaks loudly. Which is, present tense, being corrupted actively. I thought my old self was dead and gone. I thought I'd never have to worry about it again, because it, no, it's not. It's not. Even as I live and breathe, my old self, as I live and breathe, my old self suffocates and dies. 
It is presently being corrupted by the influences of this world. You know, it's a, years ago, I'll never forget, um, when I was stationed in Homer, they brought a guy in that was an expert in alcoholism. And he was, he was warning us about the dangers of alcoholism, and it was, was really good stuff. I really appreciate it. But he had one illustration that I will never forget. And I'm not even sure if he was right, but I'll never forget the illustration. He said, when, when you descend, and I think it applies to any habit or addiction. Oh. He says, when a person descends into you know, the, the problems of alcohol, he says, you start on a path like this, and then you, 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 know, you, you, get, you get a grip on it, right? And you stop doing it, right? And you level out. He said, if you step back into it, it, it doesn't go like this. He said, if you decline into, he was talking about alcoholism, and okay, you get it under control, you're not doing it, you go like this. When you step back into it, you don't step back into it from here. You step back into it from down here, where you would have been if you never quit. It's a continual thing. Now, I, I don't even know if he was right, but I never forgot the illustration because that's my experience of sin. Right? Because it's actively being, it's actively decaying. It's actively being corrupted. And when I open the door to it, that's where I start. I start where I would have been if I'd never stepped out of it. It's pretty somber truth, pretty somber teaching. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with lusts of deceit. There's that idea of deceit. It never goes away. And and you be renewed in the renewing of your mind, thinking clearly, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Now, there's the positive side of paying attention to the grammar. That new self, it's, it's already been created. It is there waiting for me. Now, my experience of it is partial and progressive, but that new self has been created. The John that God created me to be, it's there waiting for me. It's a matter of do I want to step into it or not? Do I want to walk in that or do I want to walk in the old man? It's a choice I face every day, right? It's really, um, it's really pretty simple. We lay aside the old self and we put on the new self, right, The old man that's not only dead but actively decaying, I put on the new self which has been created, right? Paul describes this as a a deliberate act. Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh. There's the two sides of the equation. Put on the one, do not put on the other. Feed and nourish the one, don't feed and nourish the other. A deliberate act, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. It's as simple as this. Every day I'm presented with a choice. It's over you. I have to desperately cling to him, lean daily into his renewing power, and put on that new self. Do I embrace the old self filled with deceit and being deceived? Do I embrace the new self, which is a reflection of his character? And it's really, I think, as simple as this. Simple as this. If most of you are like me, you've got a closet with way too many clothes in it, right? So if you can just visualize opening your closet door, this may take a lot of effort. If you can imagine opening your closet door and there's only two sets of clothing there, One of them is new and radiant and beautiful and magnificent and fits 
me perfectly because it was designed for me as it was designed for you. And the other is rotted, decayed. I mean, you can just draw your own visual, you know, stinky, whatever, however you want to draw it, right? Simple question. Which do you want to put on? Which do you want to wear? There's an old expression that clothes make the man or woman, right? There's biblical truth in it. There's biblical truth in it. We make a choice. What shall we wear? Father, I thank you for the, um, the simplicity of your word. Father, I am so grateful that I don't have to worry about 613 rules, Lord, and keeping all of them, Lord. Um, Father, I couldn't even keep track of them, let alone do them. Um, so, so grateful, Lord, that because of the sufficiency of your son, the sufficiency of his sacrifice, the power of his resurrection, the indwelling of your spirit, Father. We don't have to focus on that. Father, what we focus on is walking daily in a manner that demonstrates who you are to the world. And your Father, as simple as that is, we know it is beyond our ability, Father. Father, if we lean for a moment into our own ability, our own understanding, even our own thoughts and desires, Father, we're just kind of stepping back into that old mentality, the mentality of the flesh, Lord, of the old self that was so inadequate. So, Father, this morning, we, um, we begin with confession, Lord. We confess our complete need for you. Every bit as much as we needed you to save us, to wash us, clean us up, redeem us, fill us with your spirit, Lord. Infuse us with the power of the... Even as we needed you absolutely for that, Father, so we also need absolutely for you every day to do the work of renewing in our minds and hearts, Lord. I pray, Father, we'd be wise enough to begin each day with that confession. Lord, I need you. And Father, at the same time, Lord, we look to you for the strength to make the conscious decision to walk in that, new, in that new, newness of life that you've given us, Lord. It's a done deal. You've given it to us, Father. And to nourish that new self, Father, through your word. Beautiful, the beautiful community of faith that we enjoy here, Lord. These things that nourish the new self. Father, if we do that, we have an assurance that you will manifest yourself in us and through us. Father, help us to that, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.